Temperatures were high in the small town of Aurora, Texas in the summer of 1973, but tensions were higher. While most of the country was focused on the developing Watergate controversy, the 300 or so residents of Aurora were focused on an investigation of their own. The investigation in question revolved around whether or not a body buried within an unmarked 75-year-old grave in the town cemetery would be exhumed. If the body that was in this tiny, nondescript grave was allowed to be removed from its resting place, it could potentially change the course of human history. Dallas Times Herald journalist Bill Case believed that the grave contained the body of an alien pilot whose ship had crashed in Aurora in April 1897. If he was right, it would mean that humans aren't alone in the universe. And if an alien came to Earth back then, then it begged the question, how many had visited since? Are we alone? Have we been alone? Will we be alone? Stories of alien visitation have been ingrained in human history. Alien life may not be confirmed, but our obsession with it can't be ignored. Welcome to Extraterrestrial, a ParCast original. I'm Tim. And I'm Bill. Every Tuesday, we visit the marvelous and strange stories about our encounters with beings from another world. We're aware that some of these tales may seem completely unbelievable. Others may seem all too real. But these stories shed light on human nature, human beliefs, and human psychology. And each story has garnered hundreds, if not millions, of true believers. And for that reason, we think they're worth exploring. Welcome to our second and final episode on the 1896 and 1897 airship phenomenon. Last week, we examined the various reports of a mysterious cigar-shaped aircraft that appeared all over the American West Coast in late 1896 and over the Midwest in the spring of 1897 before disappearing. This week, we'll follow Bill Case's investigation into the Aurora airship crash and try to determine if the airship really was an alien spacecraft. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. The mysterious airship first attracted attention when it appeared over Sacramento, California in late November, 1896. It was spotted over cities up and down the West Coast until it seemed to suddenly disappear in late December. Two months later, it reappeared in Nebraska and was sighted all over the Midwest until disappearing for good around mid-April of 1897. According to a cotton buyer named S.E. Hayden, the airship disappeared because it crashed in the town of Aurora, Texas on April 18, 1897. He also claimed that the airship's pilot was an alien and that Aurora's residents had buried it in the local cemetery. At the time, it seemed like nobody took Hayden's story particularly seriously. 
There were many fantastic stories about the airship, and most people probably assumed he was making it all up. As the years passed, the airship faded from people's memories, and nobody bothered to examine Hayden's story more thoroughly. But in 1947, 50 years after the airship's disappearance, the UFO craze began, and people started taking stories of extraterrestrial visitors more seriously. In the early 1970s, Hayden's story about the Aurora airship crash resurfaced and eventually caught the eye of Dallas Times-Herald columnist Bill Case. During his investigation into Hayden's story, Case discovered reasons to believe the airship might have actually crashed in Aurora. In June 1973, Case located what he believed to be the pilot's grave in the Aurora Cemetery. After learning about Case's discovery, major UFO organizations such as the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON, and the National Investigations Committee for Aerial Phenomena, or NICAP, petitioned the Aurora Cemetery Organization for permission to exhume the body. But in late June, disaster struck. A MUFON lead UFO investigator, Earl F. Watts, had gone down to Aurora to personally supervise what he believed would be the imminent exhumation of the airship pilot's body. But when he went to go see the grave for himself, the rough-hewn rock that served as a tombstone wasn't there. Watts tried not to panic. He thought maybe he had gotten mixed up and was just looking in the wrong part of the cemetery. But the pilot's gravestone wasn't anywhere to be found. He sprinted to his car and grabbed the metal detector he had in the trunk. When he passed it over where the grave was supposed to be, there was no response. Watts immediately called Bill Case and told him he suspected that someone had robbed the pilot's grave. On July 4, 1973, Case ran a column with the headline, Grave Believed UFO Pilots at Aurora, Entered, Robbed. Case was furious with the Aurora Cemetery Association. He had begged them to provide some measure of security around the grave, and because of their inaction, there was almost no chance of finding out if S.E. Hayden's story about the airship crash had any truth to it. While Case didn't necessarily think that the association was behind the grave robbery, he did believe they had purposely dragged their feet in cooperating with his investigation. After he had published his article about the grave's existence, mobs of people had descended on the cemetery, trampling over graves, and even breaking pieces off of tombstones to take home as souvenirs. Understandably, the cemetery association wasn't happy about this, and Case thought they were retaliating on some level. His suspicions had merit. Not long after the grave was robbed, the cemetery association finally posted guards to watch over the cemetery at night. In addition, they banned all investigations at the cemetery and threatened to fight any exhumation requests in courts. Aurora's residents were split over whether or not the body should still be exhumed. Town Marshal H.R. Edel wanted to see if there was anything down there, but not everyone felt the same way. An 86-year-old local historian named Etta Peguet insisted that Hayden's story had been a hoax. She was old enough to remember the story and claimed that, quote, it was all a hoax cooked up by Hayden and a bunch of men sitting around in the general store. 
She added that Hayden was a well-known prankster in town and echoed statements from other witnesses who claimed that the windmill the airship was said to have crashed into never even existed. The argument over the airship crash story spread amongst the major UFO organizations as well. Both MUFON and NICAP firmly believed that the story was real. But the Arizona-based Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, or APRO, was far more skeptical. But APRO's skepticism probably wasn't necessarily based on the merits of the story itself. Normally, APRO was quick to believe most UFO and extraterrestrial reports. But the organization had a bitter rivalry with both MUFON and NICAP, and its refusal to support the Aurora airship story probably had more to do with that discord. However, this isn't to say that APRO's skepticism didn't have merit. In one of his articles, Bill Case had written that scientists from North Texas State University had tested metal fragments found near the alleged crash site in mid-May and concluded that they were, quote, puzzling and unusual. But according to an APRO newsletter from July 1973, the fragments were an ordinary aluminum alloy. To back up their argument, APRO pointed out that they had been found in perfect condition. If the fragments had been underground since 1897, surely they would have deteriorated to a certain degree, even if the fragments came from an extraterrestrial technology. APRO asserted that the Aurora investigation was essentially a publicity stunt for MUFON, NICAP, and Bill Case. Like S.E. Hayden, perhaps Bill Case saw the airship crash as an opportunity to get more publicity for his column and the Dallas Times-Herald. A UFO researcher named Hayden Hughes, not to be confused with S.E. Hayden, certainly seemed to think that was the case. Hughes had been one of the first people to bring renewed attention to the Aurora crash, and he was disappointed at what he felt was the lack of professionalism in Bill Case's ensuing investigation. One of the main targets of Hughes' ire was a self-styled scientific treasure hunter named Frank Kelly, who had provided the metal samples that had supposedly been deemed unusual. However, once it came out that the fragments weren't unusual at all, Kelly suddenly became unreachable. As one of the people who had first brought attention to the crash story, Hughes and other members of his organization, the International UFO Bureau, took it upon themselves to conduct a proper investigation during the rest of 1973 and into 1974. His first order of business was to locate the witnesses who Case had claimed were alive at the time of the crash. One of these witnesses was 96-year-old Mary Evans, who had been quoted as saying her parents had gone to the crash site and seen the aliens. But when Hughes spoke to Evans, she denied having said anything close to that. She said, quote, they wrote that up to suit themselves. I didn't say it that way. Similarly, Charles Stevens, who Case had claimed personally saw the airship crash, said that wasn't true. While he had seen a fire, Stevens told Hughes, I had thought it was a house that was burning. A third witness, who Case said was named G.C. Curley, was actually named A.J. Mick Curley, and he never even lived in Aurora. At the time of the crash, he was a schoolteacher in Oklahoma. Clearly, there were holes in Bill Case's reporting. But sadly, Case never got a chance to respond to Hughes' investigation. 
he died in December 1974. Although it was looking like the story about the Aurora airship crash had been nothing more than a hoax, investigators from MUFON kept trying to get permission to exhume what they believed was the pilot's body, but the Aurora Cemetery Association continued to deny them. Even without any new developments, the airship story remained in the press, culminating with a piece in the New York Times in February 1979, followed by an article in Time magazine a month later. The New York Times article took a neutral stance on the crash, ultimately concluding it was an interesting puzzle and would probably remain as such. In the end, the only non-anecdotal evidence in favor of the crash happening is Hayden's original April 1897 article in the Dallas Morning News. Many of the supposed eyewitnesses claimed to have been misquoted or were trying to remember events from over 75 years before. If the crash had happened, surely it would have made enough headlines that there would be other contemporary records of the event. But Aurora's official town records make no mention of it, and there are no diaries, letters, or any personal accounts that corroborated Hayden's story. But some ufologists are not always interested in providing research to back up their claims. If they want to believe, nothing will convince them otherwise. Such was the case in Aurora in the 1970s, where believers refused to accept Hayden Hughes' findings. Even if he had been able to dig up the supposed airship pilot's grave, this would have done little to silence the believers. Many UFO societies had differing opinions as to where the grave was located. So if nothing turned up, people could have argued that they had the wrong grave. In addition, because of the theory that the grave was robbed in June 1974, it would have been easy to argue that finding any proof of the crash was impossible. However, just because the Aurora airship crash story was a dead end, that didn't mean that it was impossible to determine if the famous airship was an extraterrestrial vessel. In 1977, a relatively new UFO sighting with details eerily similar to the airship sightings began to make the rounds. And the man who had submitted the report wasn't some prankster, crackpot, or attention seeker. It was Jimmy Carter, the eventual president of the United States. Coming up, we'll see if Jimmy Carter's UFO encounter can help explain the airship phenomenon. And now, back to the story. Although the 1973 investigation into the Aurora airship crash story had largely been ruled out as a hoax, some UFO societies, such as MUFON, clung to the belief that the airship was an alien spacecraft. While the lack of evidence from the site made it incredibly difficult to determine whether the crash had happened, there was still the possibility of proving the airship was extraterrestrial in nature. The key to unlocking the airship phenomenon was a UFO report filed with the International UFO Bureau in 1973 that was eerily similar to many of the airship stories from 1896 and 1897. And this UFO sighting was reported by none other than Jimmy Carter, who would eventually go on to become president of the United States. On January 6, 1969, Carter was still eight years away from becoming the most powerful man in the world. Although he had previously been a Georgia state senator, 
At the time, Carter was serving as the local district governor of the Lions Club, an international community service organization. That night, Carter had come to speak at the local Lions Club chapter in Leary, Georgia. But when he arrived, the door was locked. He checked his watch. It was only 7.15 p.m. He had arrived early. While he waited for the meeting to start at 7.30, Carter passed the time by identifying the constellations in the night sky. But as Carter shifted his gaze to the west, he was surprised to see a celestial object he didn't recognize. As a former naval officer, he was well-versed in observing the stars, and the bright light he was seeing was definitely not normal. According to Carter's report to the International UFO Bureau in Oklahoma City, the object appeared to be about as luminous as the moon and seemed to be generating its own light, which changed color as the object moved through the night sky. It also seemed to be moving under its own power, approaching and receding from Carter's position several times. Even as he observed this strange event, Carter retained his naval instincts and calculated the object was located about 30 degrees over the horizon. Eventually, the object receded into the distance and disappeared. In the report from the first Nebraska airship sighting in February 1897, the mysterious object was described as having, quote, the appearance of an immense star. But after a closer observation, the powerful light showed by its color to be artificial. It certainly must be illuminated by powerful electric dynamos, for the light sent forth by it was wonderful. This sounds very similar to Carter's UFO that seemed to be generating its own light, which changed color as the object moved through the night sky. The movements also sound similar. The 1897 object was said to slowly drift through the sky in a circular motion, echoing Carter's recollection of the object he saw seemingly approaching and receding from his position. Perhaps what Carter saw was the same craft the airship witnesses had seen returning after a decades-long absence. If not, maybe the two UFOs were still somehow related. If someone could get to the bottom of Carter's UFO sighting, it could potentially help explain the airship phenomenon. After Carter's report became heavily publicized during the 1976 presidential election, Robert Schaefer, a prominent UFO skeptic and frequent character on this podcast, decided to investigate the case. He quickly deduced that what Carter was more likely to have seen was the planet Venus in the night sky. According to his research, at the time of Carter's sighting, Venus was in the western sky, about 25 degrees over the horizon, almost exactly where Carter reported seeing his UFO. Venus is one of the brightest objects in space, and under certain atmospheric conditions, it can appear to change colors or even look like a cluster of separate lights. Additionally, Venus can appear to move in the night sky. Because Venus's orbit around the sun is contained within Earth's own orbit, its relative movement can make it appear to sometimes drift through the sky in relation to fixed objects, such as buildings or trees. 
After publishing his report on the Jimmy Carter UFO encounter in the July-August 1977 edition of Humanist magazine, Schaefer realized that his explanation of Carter's UFO encounter could also apply to the airship phenomenon of 1896 and 1897. By referencing the Old Farmer's Almanac, a reference book for weather forecasts, astronomical data, and other practical information, such as planting charts for farming, Schaefer was able to determine Venus's position during the time of the airship sightings. His suspicions proved correct. The first airship sightings were in November, when Venus is at its brightest. As Schaefer researched the airship reports from 1896 and 1897, he discovered that he wasn't the first one to propose the theory that what people thought was an airship was actually just the planet Venus. On November 22, 1896, during the airship's 20-minute flight over Sacramento, a reporter named Colvin Brown tried to convince a gaggle of onlookers at the intersection of 7th and K Streets that they were looking at Venus, not an airship. Although his argument fell upon deaf ears, the Venus explanation quickly gained traction. When reporters from the San Francisco Chronicle polled people as they walked down Market Street on November 25, 1896, the most common explanation the reporters heard was that the so-called airship was either Venus or Mars. When the airship was spotted over Nebraska in February 1897, the Beatrice Daily News tried to quiet the airship talk by explaining people were just observing Venus. An article from February 23, 1897, explained that the airship had, quote, the appearance of a greatly magnified star with luminous rays shooting out unevenly from the disk. There is no suggestion of an airship about it, but it has rather the resemblance of the frame of an opened umbrella without the cover. It is Venus, and the swaying motion and peculiar rays are the results of atmospheric conditions. This theory wasn't just the speculation of newspapers and ordinary citizens either. When the airship was spotted over Omaha, Nebraska in late February 1897, Father William Rigg, the professor of astronomy at Creighton University stated, I am satisfied in my own mind that the alleged airship was the planet Venus. I remember the night very well. It was cold and the clouds were being blown along in rifts and this will account for the deception of the star appearing to move. However, the proponents of the Venus explanation didn't account for the numerous reports that the light which people saw was attached to the underside of a massive cigar-shaped balloon. And with so many different people reporting that same detail, it seems that there must be some merit to it. But there is another theory. It's possible that these witnesses never existed at all. The practice of creating false narratives to suit a particular purpose is known as yellow journalism. It was a technique most notoriously used by the newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst. Hearst's form of journalism was especially sensational and readership-driven, dominating American culture from the beginning of his career in 1887 to the financial collapse of 1929. If a remarkable story came along, there was a very low factual threshold for running it if it meant more people would buy the paper. And the airship story was certainly remarkable. 
When the airship first appeared in November 1896, Hearst was quick to begin churning out articles about it. Surprisingly, it appeared that the Hearst-owned San Francisco Examiner was approaching the airship story with an extremely critical eye. An editorial in the Examiner from December 5th, 1896, complained that the airship sightings were due more to fake journalism than genuine sightings. To the casual observer, it seemed like Hearst's paper was taking an extremely firm stance in refusing to fall for the hype around the airship story. But across the country, Hearst's New York Journal was embracing the phenomenon with open arms. A story in the journal from November 28, 1896 claimed, the biggest problem of the age has been solved. Man has won what seemed to be his hardest battle with nature. A successful airship has been built. In the opinion of a researcher named Paris Flamand, the conflicting coverage in Hearst newspapers represented a sinister cover-up. According to his 1976 book, UFOs Exist, Flamand argued that, quote, Hearst was a man of singular ability, sweeping imagination, and a gambler for the highest stakes. He did nothing without reason. What did America's most aggressive newspaper man know about the airship that he wished to have obscured? But the famously controlling Hearst probably had fairly simple motivations for allowing conflicting coverage in his newspapers. Competition. Hearst's San Francisco Examiner was in a ferocious circulation war with the San Francisco Call, which was the most vocal newspaper when it came to supporting the airship story. By taking a critical stance against the airship, the more established Examiner was able to frame the Call as a sensationalist tabloid. This was despite the fact that most Hearst papers were as sensational as they came. The strategy worked. Although the call may have sold a large number of copies in the short term with its airship stories, Hearst's examiner won the long-term battle by positioning itself as the more reliable news source. By 1913, Hearst had weakened the call enough to purchase it at a cut-rate price, furthering his grip on San Francisco's newspaper circulation. Other non-Hearst-owned California newspapers indicated that they believed airship stories were good for sales. The Fresno Republican newspaper went so far as to say that the town which has not had its airship might as well come off the map. Business owners seemed to agree, and many used the phenomenon to advertise their wares. The owner of a Sacramento brewery ran an ad claiming the airship, quote, came down to sample Roostaller's Gilt Edge Steam Beer. When the airship appeared over Nebraska, it had a similar effect on the press. Newspapers ran every story about it that came their way, with over 150 reports printed over the course of the spring of 1897. Many of these reports claimed that the airship was an extraterrestrial craft. Though it's hard to tell how serious these claims were, the possibility that the airship was not of this planet was on people's minds. Eventually, the airship story started to draw less and less attention. On the West Coast and in the Midwest, reports petered out, and people went on with their lives without a second thought. However, many modern-day airship researchers have continued to believe that there was another explanation for the airship phenomenon beyond misidentified celestial bodies and newspaper-driven hysteria. One researcher, in particular, 
believed he had enough information to present a case that the airship was a real vessel. But this man didn't believe that the airship was extraterrestrial in nature. He was convinced that it was a human invention. Coming up, we examine the possibility that the airship was built by humans. And now, the conclusion of our story. When the airship phenomenon of 1896 and 1897 regained attention in the 1960s, one of the first explanations researchers crossed out was that humans had built the airship. Although airship prototypes had been successfully demonstrated by the time the airship appeared over Sacramento in November 1896, the airship's apparent speed and maneuverability were too far beyond our capabilities at the time. But in 2012, paranormal author Jeff Danilek wrote a book called The Great Airship of 1897, in which he proposed that the airship could have been built using human technology. One of the largest hurdles in arguing that the airship was a human invention was identifying who could have built such an incredible craft. In addition to needing vast wealth, that person would also need the ability to keep the project a secret. During the time of the airship sightings, many thought famed inventor Thomas Edison was behind the phenomenon. As one of the greatest inventors in all of human history, it's easy to understand why people might have thought Edison was responsible for such advanced technology. Apparently, there was enough talk of Edison being the airship's inventor that he had to personally deny that he had built it in April 1897. Although he contributed to the development of early light bulbs and motion picture cameras, Edison still didn't have the kind of space or resources required to construct sophisticated aircraft. And besides, Edison was no stranger to publicity. Contemporary analysis of Edison's Menlo Park laboratory challenges the idea of the lone genius inventor. While certainly brilliant, Edison also cultivated his image and name as marketing tools. By branding their inventions as Edison products, the other inventors employed at Menlo Park were able to more easily sell their projects. So if Edison were behind the airship, there's almost no way he would have wanted to keep it a secret. For Jeff Danilek, the answer to who could have been behind the fantastic craft was potentially hidden in plain sight. His focus was on the story of George Collins, the lawyer who quickly became disgraced after falsely claiming he knew the inventor's identity in late November 1896. As a member of San Francisco's high society, perhaps Collins found out who had built the airship through his network of wealthy connections. But then, when Collins came forward with his story, the inventor threatened him with legal action if Collins didn't retract his claims. The possibility that Collins' story might have actually had some truth to it is intriguing, but it still doesn't explain why he identified the inventor as a retired dentist named E.H. Benjamin. Additionally, Collins had also claimed that the airship had two canvas wings and a rudder shaped like a bird's tail. Aside from differing from most descriptions of the airship, the design Collins described was aeronautically impractical. Regardless of who was financing the airship, the biggest challenge lied in its supposed inner workings. There was no known propulsion system at the time capable of executing the complex maneuvers witnesses described. 
In the late 19th century, trains, steamboats, and most factories got their power from steam engines, which operated by heating water with a combustible fuel source, typically coal, and then using the pressure from the steam generated by the boiling water to drive a piston or other moving part. But the problem with putting a steam engine on an airship was that they needed a place for the steam to be vented. Putting one next to a balloon full of highly combustible gas would have spelled near certain disaster. Additionally, the weight from the coal and water required to power the engine would have been too much for an airship to carry. A gasoline combustion engine would have solved the weight issue. Instead of burning coal, the engine is powered by burning petroleum gas, which is a more efficient energy source than coal. So you could carry less fuel to go the same distance. However, a petroleum engine would still need to vent its exhaust. Just like with a steam engine, it could have caused a massive explosion. A safer alternative could have been a diesel engine. Instead of sparking the gas like in a petroleum engine, diesel gas was heated by compressed air. Without the presence of a spark, there was a much lower chance of an explosion. Diesel did go on to become the preferred choice for airship travel in later years. However, in 1896, diesel technology wasn't advanced enough to be a realistic option. The likeliest possibility was that the airship used an electric motor, which was far lighter than steam or gas engines and didn't produce any dangerous exhaust. Furthermore, electric motors were far quieter than other propulsion methods, which could explain why the airship seemed to fly completely silently through the sky. Battery engines of the time were capable of powering vehicles such as automobiles. The first electric car in the United States was unveiled in 1890. But the question was whether a similar engine was capable of holding a charge that could power an airship for a long enough period. Danilek argued that with enough time and money, an enterprising inventor could have refined the technology enough to fulfill the airship's requirements. But no matter how advanced the airship was, there was one technological feat that would have been impossible for it to perform, flying over the Rocky Mountains in the middle of winter. The technology required to build an engine that could power through the intense mountain winds absolutely did not exist at the time. Furthermore, the Rockies' rugged terrain would have made it nearly impossible to find suitable landing sites in inclement weather. Therefore, at least at the time, theorists leaned more heavily into the idea that the airship was either extraterrestrial or a hoax. However, Danilek proposed a third explanation. He believed that if the airship's frame was made from riveted aluminum and the balloon was fully deflatable, the airship could have been dismantled and transported across the Rocky Mountains via railroad. Nebraska's isolated plains would have been an ideal place for the airship to be reconstructed in secrecy, and the time it would have taken to transport the airship and rebuild it could very well explain the two-month gap between the airship disappearing in California in December 1896 and reappearing in the Midwest in February 1897. It did seem like the airship was gradually traveling to the east. One of its last reported sightings was over Chicago on April 11th, 1897, and many of the sightings were within 100 miles of the Union Pacific Rail Line. 
Danilek's theory was that whoever invented the airship was flying it to New York, where its existence could be revealed to great fanfare. But if that was true, it seems that the farthest it got was Michigan. An article from the town of Kalamazoo on April 15, 1897, reported that the airship that had been spotted all over the Midwest had crashed outside the city with a sound, quote, like that of heavy ordnance, immediately succeeded by a distant sound of projectiles flying through the air. But the possibility of the airship crashing near Kalamazoo offers the same problems that accompanied the Aurora crash story. If the airship had really crashed in such a spectacular fashion, there would have likely been much more coverage of it, and some debris would probably have been recovered. However, perhaps the lack of evidence is one of the biggest reasons to believe the airship could have crashed near Kalamazoo, which isn't far from Lake Michigan. Maybe the airship crashed somewhere over the water and the debris sank to the bottom of the lake. Unfortunately, considering the sheer size of Lake Michigan, there's virtually zero chance of being able to find any wreckage. And that's assuming that there was any wreckage to find in the first place. Danilek is only able to speculate as to what became of the airship, closing his book with a fictional portrayal of what might have happened to the mysterious craft. Ultimately, he believed that some unknown investor was bankrolling these flights and that, in the end, a crash of some sort put an end to the endeavor. His guess is as good as anyone's. With this particular UFO sighting being so far in the past, there is no tangible evidence left to give credence to any one theory. With that in mind, and with little to go on in terms of hard record-keeping, the airship phenomenon of 1896 and 1897 will probably never be fully explained, but that doesn't mean we can't use the facts available to us to rate its believability on a scale of 1 to 10. Although the newspapers probably made up many of the airship reports, the sheer volume suggests that at least some sightings were authentic. With so many different outlets reporting on the airship, it's remarkable how consistent the details are across the board. People must have seen something. But there is no real evidence to support the extraterrestrial theory. All witnesses of the Aurora airship crash proved to be dishonest or misinformed. And while there is a small chance that the airship could have been a human invention, it would have required a huge leap in technology. Additionally, the space, resources, and manpower required to build it would have made secrecy impossible. The Venus theory proposed by Robert Schaefer seems to hold up logically and is given further weight by the fact that there were skeptical witnesses in the 1890s who originally proposed the same theory. While the popularity of the airship reports speaks to the human desire to encounter something from beyond our world, there ultimately doesn't seem to be anything alien about this story at all. And for that reason, we give it a one on the believability scale. Who knows, maybe one day an alien's body will be unearthed from Aurora's cemetery, or a piece of wreckage will be found somewhere in Nebraska's vast prairies, or at the bottom of one of the Great Lakes. But until that day arrives, or the airship returns to Earth, 
The question of what people saw in 1896 and 1897 will have to remain unanswered. Thanks for tuning in to Extraterrestrial. For more information on the airship phenomenon of 1896 and 1897, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Great Airship Mystery, a UFO of the 1890s by Daniel Cohen, and The Great Airship of 1897 by J. Allen Danilek, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all previous episodes of Extraterrestrial, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. New episodes come out every Tuesday. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Extraterrestrial was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Russell Nash. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Extraterrestrial is written by Alex Benedin and stars Bill Thomas and Tim Johnson.